This morning's scripture is Genesis 10, 1 through Genesis 11, 9. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Teras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarma. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabteca. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dudan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Calneh in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Calah, and Rusin, between Nineveh and Calah. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, Naphtahim, Patrasim, Kaluhim, from whom all the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan, I'm sorry, Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zimmerites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zibiom as far as Lashah. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arparkashad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arpakashad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almodad, Shelah, Hazarmapheth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Misha in the direction of Safar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. 
Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. In 1945, on June 26th, in the city of San Francisco, the representatives of 50 countries around the world signed the following agreement which includes this preamble. We, the peoples of the United Nations, determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, which twice in our lifetime has brought untold sorrow to mankind, and to reaffirm faith in fundamental human rights and the dignity and worth of the human person and the equal rights of men and women and of nations large and small, and to establish conditions under which justice and respect for the obligations arising from treaties and other sources of international law can be maintained, and to promote social progress and better standards of life and larger freedom, and for these ends to practice tolerance and live together in peace with one another as good neighbors, and to unite our strength to maintain international peace and security and to ensure by the acceptance of principles and the institution of methods that armed force shall not be used, save in the common interest, and to employ international machinery for the promotion of the economic and social advancement of all peoples. We've resolved to combine our efforts to accomplish these aims. Accordingly, our respective governments through representatives assembled in the city of San Francisco, who've exhibited their full powers found to be in good and due form, have agreed to the present charter of the United Nations and do hereby establish an international organization to be known as the United Nations. I would argue, friends, that unity and cooperation among the peoples of the world is not an intrinsic good. It's not inherently good. It can be a force for tremendous good, but it can also be a force for tremendous evil. What do I mean by that? Well, it all depends on the goal. It depends on the aim of our union, what we're trying to get done by uniting together. And and by and large, I think the aims established in this preamble to the UN Charter 
are biblical and the, the rationale for their union is compelling. But what this charter for the United Nations does not answer is why an organization like the United Nations is necessary in the first place. Why do the nations of the world start from a position of division and disunity? Why is that our starting point? Why are there 195 independent states and not just one state in the world today? And is the fact that we are in so many ways divided and separated by, by clans and languages and lands and nations, is that a sign of something good or a reflection of something bad? Well, there are a lot of reasons the nations are divided. There are a lot of reasons we start off separated from one another. And in Genesis 10 and 11, the Lord identifies one of them. Think of it this way. Genesis 10 describes the effect of our separation. And Genesis 11 gives us the cause or the reason behind our separation. They're they're not written in chronological order. That's important to know. Chronologically, chapter 11, 1 through 9 explains it's the cause behind the effect that's described in chapter 10. And the author of Genesis organized the material this way because the genealogy in chapter 10 that Suzanne worked so hard to read it raises a question that's only answered by the first nine verses of chapter 11. Does that make sense? So chapter 10 is the effect, what's happened in the world? Why are, what's this separation look like? How are we separated and divided? Chapter 11, one through nine is the cause. One of the reasons that's the case. So look first at chapter 10, verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies and their nations and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. What's that? Well, that's what I said a minute ago. That's the effect, the reality of our our division, our separation by clans and languages and lands and, and nations. But that raises at the end of chapter 10, it really summarizes all of chapter 10, a really good question. How in the world did that happen? If mankind is is descended from one man, Noah, how did his descendants, including every man and woman living in the world today, end up separated from one another? How did we end up divided? Well, Genesis 11, 1 through 9 gives us the answer. And in short, friends, the answer is a story of human pride and arrogance. It's a story. I love it when the Bible answers our questions in a story. How, how, why is it in part that the nations and clans and languages of the world that we're separated? Why do we even need an organization like the UN on some level? Well, one of the reasons for that, arguably the most important reason, foundational reason, is human pride and arrogance. And in the course of explaining that answer, helping us understand that answer, Genesis 11, 1 through 9 makes 
a really critical point about who God is. Who God is and the way that he works in the world today. These nine verses at the beginning of chapter 11 that we're going to focus on, they teach us something that was just as true back then as it is true today. Just as true about the way God worked back then as it is true about the way God works today. What am I talking about? What's this? Main point of the whole passage, friends. The Lord will humble all who exalt themselves against him. That's the point. Why, why, why is it ultimately that the nations and clans and peoples and languages are separated? It's, it's this reason that the Lord will humble all who exalt themselves against him. It's the reason we're divided, the reason we're separated. It's, it's not just that we're proud. It's a sign and a reflection of the fact that God refuses to tolerate our pride. He's not putting up with human pride. He's, he's not winking at human pride or saying, oh, look at that. To the contrary, he's relentlessly and eternally committed to addressing our pride, to exposing our pride, and he will not fail to humble us in the midst of our pride. Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord that is my name, my glory, I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. What, what's the whole point of this entire passage? The Lord will humble all who exalt themselves against him. That's the ultimate cause behind our separation. And, and I think there are two reasons why that's the case, okay? If the cause of our separation, we're going to look at this, is that the Lord will humble all who exalt themselves against him. There are two reasons he does that. The first is this, point one, human pride is an assault on the supremacy of God. Human pride is an assault. It's an attack on the supremacy of God. Look at Genesis 11 verse one. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Oh, just some background, we'll quick, okay? Genesis 10 verse 10, if you look there, it associates this land of Shinar with the descendants of Ham. And in particular with a mighty man named Nimrod. But, but the reference to this migration in chapter 11 verse 2 doesn't explicitly exclude the descendants of Japheth or Shem. We just know that people are migrating from the east. And if you read the genealogy that comes later in chapter 11, verses 10 through 16, and then you notice that in Genesis 10, 25, that the earth was divided in the days of Peleg, and you do the math on that, it seems that the Tower of Babel story takes place about a century after the flood. About a hundred years after Noah and his sons left the ark. And, and I'd point out at the beginning here that, that there's nothing inherently alarming about the people preparing building supplies in verse 3. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them. They have brick for stone, bitumen for mortar. I, I mean, what, what did the Lord tell Noah and his descendants? He told them to what? Genesis 9, 1, to be fruitful and multiply. 
So on face value, making bricks in a kiln or, or adapting bitumen from mortar could, could easily be part of subduing the earth, doing what God told them to do, using the resources that God created to enhance human flourishing. But if you look at verse 4, chapter 11, verse 4, look there with me. Genesis reveals here that the goal, the reason for beginning this particular construction project was a direct assault on the supremacy of God. Verse four, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You know what the heavens was associated with in the ancient Near East, that culture? Heavens. The heavens is the place where God lives. It's God's place. It's God's dwelling. It's where he belongs. When the people say, let us build a tower with its top in the heavens, they're not just trying to create some architectural wonder because they just finished architecture school. They're not. They're attempting to ascend to the throne of God. They're, they're grasping for equality with God. They're, they're trying to exchange the boundaries and limitations of life as a creature for the privileges and glory of the creator. And instead of submitting to God, they're trying to become God. You following me? Instead of submitting to God, they're, they're trying to become God. Does that sound familiar? If you've been reading through Genesis up to this point, that's not a new move or a new trick or a new act. That's what Adam and Eve tried to do in the Garden of Eden. They, 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 why did they eat that fruit? Because they saw, they thought, if I eat it, I can become like God. What did the daughters of man do in, in Genesis 5? They tried to produce children that were immortal, trying to be like God. And it's, it's the same thing we do today, friends. We, we don't want to follow God. We don't want to submit to God. You know what we want to do? We want to be God. <laughs> want to be God. And, and there are two reasons for that. And, and we see these reasons both in our own life Coming right out of verse four. What, what's the first reason? Why do we, not just these people, why, why do we with them want to be God? Well, I think first because we're enamored with our own glory. So look back at verse four. We're enamored with our own glory. Let us build a tower with its top in the heavens and then notice, let us make a name for ourselves. Think about that. Okay, as image bearers of God, our worth, our, our dignity, our value, what, what gives you significance. You know what? That doesn't come from what you do. You know where that comes from? It comes from who you are. It comes from who your creator God has made you to be. That, that's the foundation of a biblical doctrine of man. You, you want to answer the question, who am I? All kinds of people throughout the world today and philosophers in history trying to get their mind around that question. Who am I? 
You know what Genesis says you are? You are an image bearer of the almighty, all-glorious God. That's who you are. And if you're a Christian, you're also something more. You're a beloved son or daughter of the king. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called, that we should be named, what? Children of God. The people in this chapter, this story, if they had eyes to see and ears to hear, God had already given them a name. He'd already given them worth and value and dignity. He made them in his image. And if they would follow him, they would be his beloved sons and daughters. But, but what does the world say? What do these people buy into? The, the world says what God calls you is irrelevant. Right? That this whole religious stuff is just for weaklings. You're, you're a blank slate. Fate has dealt you a a unique mix of gifts and abilities and now it's up to you to make something of yourself, to to write your story, to prove your potential, to, to show yourself and everyone else around you just how great you are. And we don't show up on Sunday morning with a t-shirt that says, check our minds. Sadly, many times we're thinking, I, I sure hope today I can prove the worth of my existence to these people. We do that even if we don't wear the shirt. We go out there and try to make a name for ourselves. And so, so I say to you, friend, if, if you feel like this morning that you are running on a performance treadmill... And, and you are incessantly evaluating yourself and critiquing yourself and, and scanning the crowd for signs of approval and disapproval. If, if you're on cloud nine when people love you and you're just wrecked when people critique you or hate you, then please, please take care and listen to me. More often than not, the reason we feel those things reflects the fact that we have despised and rejected the glorious identity that God has given us and we are running away as fast as we can to create an identity of our own making. That's what's going on. Now, why is that a problem? Well, it's a problem because to despise the king's gift is to reject the king himself. You despise your God-given identity, your God-given name, your God-given worth and significance, and you are rejecting God himself. The world says you have a self-esteem problem. You know what God says? You have a pride problem. A pride problem because we don't want God, I mean, let's just be honest, we don't want God or anybody else to give us our identity. That's beneath us. We're better than that. We want to create it for ourselves. We don't want to be creatures. That's lame. We want to be the creator. Friend, God, God made you. Please hear this. God made you to reflect his glory, 
to display his glory, to, to live in such a way that, that everyone observing your life, when they see you, they can't help but cry out, God, you're amazing. But instead of humbly and embracing and delighting in all that we are and all that we have and helping people see just how great our God is, we try to get in on the show. Right? We, we, we try to steal part of the spotlight, as it were. We're, we're happy for God to stand in the middle and for God to get much glory, but we just want a little teensy, teensy, weensy being part of the glory. How about I share it with God? I won't be so arrogant as to say like, get out. Can I have a little bit? We're enamored with our own glory. And so we try to perfect our bodies. We try to perfect our homes. We try to perfect our grades, our marriages, our kids, our profit margins, and by the way, even our churches. <laughs> so that we can, we can bask in the glory of our own achievements. Friends, I tell you, working on all those things isn't wrong, okay? Using them to make a name for yourself is. Why? Because that is a direct assault on the supremacy of God. God hasn't given you a single gift in your life to make much of you. He's given you all the gifts in your life so you can make much of him. That's the point. He's infinitely glorious and any glory we have is just a reflection of his own. And so we need to repent. We need to repent. We need, we need to repent of being enamored with our own glory. That's the first reason we try to be God, to build this tower with its top in the heavens. We're enamored with our own glory. But, but here's the second, back to verse four. This verse is loaded. Why, why, why else are we trying to be God? We're not just enamored with our glory. We're trying to control our destiny. Verse four. And let us make a name for ourselves. What? Why? What, what, what are we trying to avoid here with this Look at me, business, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, on one level, okay, their desire to, to stay together, to not be dispersed, I'm tracking with that. That makes sense. Why? Because there's strength in numbers. And, and besides, if, if the whole goal is to try to make a name for ourselves, I bet you guys we can do something that's far more crazy amazing if we work together than if we try to do it alone. So I'm tracking with that. But, but here's the problem. Here's the problem. Their desire to not be dispersed over the face of the whole earth, do you know what that is? That is the exact opposite of what God told them to do. Where? Look at Genesis 9 verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and congregate in one place. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth. Did you recognize the contrast here? Okay, as they see it, there are two options. 
All right? On the one hand, we could do what God commanded us to do. We could obey his word by being dispersed, dispersing ourselves, filling the entire earth. Or option B, we could build a tower with its top in the heavens and make a name for ourselves. Now, at first glance, looking at that, it can almost seem like they're comparing apples and oranges. I mean, if over here is obeying God's word, what do you think that over here the option, the alternative is? Disobeying God's word. Well, well it is, but, but there's a deeper dynamic at work here. We need to notice that the choice isn't just between obeying God's word and disobeying God's word. Friends, the choice is between which name will I magnify? Which name will I glorify? Will, will I make much of my own wisdom, my own greatness, my own power by privileging my desires over God's commands? Or will I make much of God's wisdom, God's greatness, and God's power by privileging God's commands over my desires? That's the choice. It's not just about doing what God says or not doing what God says. It's about whether we're living for our glory or God's glory. They should have trusted that if they obeyed God's command to fill the earth, God would protect them. God would take care of them. God would provide for them. By the way, if you ever find yourself saying, I don't think I'm going to do what I think God wants me to do because it doesn't look safe. Take care. Never have I once seen the Lord call someone to do something in his word that at first glance looks safe. He's in the business of calling us to do things that are inherently uncomfortable. Why? So that we would learn to trust and experience that we are safe in him. That we can trust him. That his word has our best interest in view, even when we don't see it. But they didn't do that. They didn't trust God because they were more interested in trusting themselves and controlling their own life so they could magnify the glory of their name. So, so think of it this way, okay? Trusting God, obeying God, and glorifying God always go hand in hand. And trusting yourself and obeying yourself and glorifying yourself always go hand in hand. That's the choice we face. That's the choice they faced. And they chose to try to glorify themselves. They chose human pride. Remember our question, why, why will the Lord humble all who exalt themselves against him? The first reason is because human pride is a direct assault on the supremacy of God. It attacks his supremacy. Here's the second reason. Human pride cannot prevail against the purposes of God. But why will God humble all who exalt themselves against him? Well, first, because human pride is an assault on the supremacy of God. And second, because human pride cannot prevail against the purposes of God. Look at Genesis 11 verse 5. This is the pivot, the hinge on which the entire story changes direction. And the Lord came down. The Lord came down to see the city 
and the tower which the children of man had built. What do we think we can do through all our technology and and all our social cooperation? We think we can achieve and ascend to the the very glory of God himself, to the proverbial tower in the heavens. We we don't need God. We don't need anyone. We are completely self-sufficient. Thank you very much. At least that's what we think. But if you read verse 5, what's actually true? By the way, do you ever notice that not everything you think is actually true? Just presume because you think something, it must be true. They thought something. They thought they could make a name for themselves. But verse 5 shows us what's true. What's true? What's actually true is that even when we think that we're approaching the very summit of human greatness and human potential and, and human glory and renown, the God who made the world and everything in it, he still has to come down even to see us. Psalm 113, verse 4. The Lord is high. Hear that? The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. What did they try to do? Let's build a tower with its top in the heavens. Let's be God. You know what they did, friends? They way underestimated the glory of God. God's glory isn't in the heavens. You could, you could reach the clouds. You haven't even begun to touch his glory. It's above the heavens. It's above the clouds. Who, who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? Isaiah 40, 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Check that out. Who stretches out the heavens like a, a curtain. You don't stretch out the heavens if that's as high as you get. You stretch them out if your glory is above them. Stretches them out like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing, makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their little stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. You know what the prophet Isaiah says you are like compared to the Lord of glory? He says we are dust. We're dust. We're less than nothing. We're, we're emptiness. In the same way that you look down on a grasshopper and will squish it if you're not careful, so the Lord looks down on you. Even at the height of your power, friend. I don't care if your family, your spouse, your kids, the other folks on your sports team, your boss, think you are the man, you are the woman, even at the height of your power, guess what? The Lord God still looks down on you. He looks down on you. And let me just, by the way, make a quick application that it's for the very reason we forget that and we think we can address God eye to eye, man to man, maybe even occasionally look down on him. It's the very reason we do that, that we need to immerse our hearts and minds in God's word. 
You know why? Because it's time immersing your heart and your mind in the word of God that will remind you just how majestic God is. And when you see just how majestic God is in and through the pages of his word, you know what you then notice? How small and lowly we actually are. You're not going to get the answer to the question, who am I right? If you don't start off by letting the word of God answer the question, who is he? Remember that. And here's one of the most important applications, implications of, of this fact that human pride cannot prevail against the purposes of God. It's this, that our designs and our plans and our ambitions and our goals will not prevail against the Lord. Why not? For the very simple reason that he is God and you are not. <laughs> He's God and you're not. He's the creator. We're, we're his creatures. When, when he grants life, we live. When he takes life away, we die. We're creatures. We're not the creator. And notice the divine logic in verse 6. What's the logic here? Behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and, and nothing that they propose to do, the purposes of man, will now be impossible for them. What, what, what's God saying? Well, he's saying that if left unopposed, there is no limit to the pride of man. It knows no borders. It is not self-contained. Why not? It can't be satisfied because human pride is by definition a, a lust for greatness, a thirst for glory. And, and the moment we achieve one glory, what do we immediately start doing? We want another one and another one and, and another one. Human pride is never satisfied. We will not stay in our place unless God keeps us in our place, unless God upholds and protects and preserves the distinction between the creator and the creature. God must do that. Because for God to abandon that distinction, for God to give you and me what we so often want, absolute autonomy, <laughs> would be for for us to be allowed to pretend that we are God, when in reality, what? Only he is God. And would be for God to allow us to exchange the truth, he's God, I'm not, for a lie. And the, and the very essence of God's goodness, the very essence of his righteousness, refuses to comply with that arrangement. <laughs> Human pride must be opposed. Human pride must be defeated. Human pride must be humbled. The, the proud purposes of man will not prevail. The sovereign purposes of God will always prevail. That's what God's reminding us of. I, I warn you, friend, the Lord God is not a divine genie in your life. He's not a divine genie. What do I mean by that? He, he will not allow himself to be harnessed to the wagon of your plans or manipulated into blessing your agenda. It's not who he is. For him to do that, for him to allow you through prayer to harness him to your plans 
or to manipulate him into blessing your agenda would be for him to cease to be God. We don't, we don't come to God asking him to harness himself to our agenda. We come to God submitted to him and saying, Lord, help me to follow your agenda. You're God. I'm not. End of story. We, we, we say what? We, see, we say, come, let us make bricks. Come, let us build a city. Look at verse seven. What does God say? Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. You know what happened when God confused the language, the speech of all the folks who were trying to build this tower with its top in the heavens? Well, what happened? Well, they couldn't build anymore. Why not? Because they couldn't communicate with each other. They, they, couldn't, they, they couldn't even keep migrating together because they couldn't understand one another. So they what? They had to part ways. Look at verse eight. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth and they left off building the city. You, you know what happens in verse eight? It's the very thing they were trying to avoid in the first place. The very thing. The, the very thing that through their proud rebellion, they were saying, God, uh-uh, not going there. God, through their rebellion, made it happen. The pride of man, friend, your pride, my pride, your agenda, your desires will never prevail against the purposes of God. And as I was preparing the sermon this week, I was gripped with a fear that right now some of you are trying. What do I mean by that? Well, well, you know, you know, some of you, what God has told you to do. You know what God wants you to do. But, but instead of, of humbling yourself under his hand and obeying his word, you're, you're resisting. You're refusing. You're, you're making excuses to keep right on doing whatever it is that you want to keep on doing. And I warn you this morning on the authority of God's word, friend, you will not win. You won't win. You can't prevail against the purposes of God. You will be humbled and God will have the final word. He's, he's not playing with you when he commands you to do things or tells you to not do things. He's not toying with you. He's not giving you lifestyle options. He, he's not sitting up there in heaven just wanting, wishing, and waiting for people to change their mind and decide he's cool. He doesn't need your support. He doesn't need your approval. He demands your obedience. He's your God. He's your creator. He, he requires your submission. And if you will not submit yourself to him, then he will humble you beneath him. Not because he's putting you in some place new, but because he's going to open your eyes to see who you always were. Human pride will not prevail against the purposes of God. And the final irony in this story, look at verse 9. I want to linger here for a couple minutes. The final irony is that the people called this city Babel. They called it Babel. You know what Babel means in the language of the Babylonians? 
By the way, that, the word Babel is the word that the, most of the Old Testament uses to describe the city of Babylon. Babel, Babylon. You know what it means in the Babylonian language? It means the gate of the gods. The gate of the gods. Do you know what Babel means in Hebrew? Mixed or confused. Mixed up. Confused. In their pride, these people, you and me, we want to make a name for ourselves, and that is precisely what they did. Except the name they received wasn't a testimony to their wisdom. It was a testimony to the height of their folly and a testimony to the enduring supremacy of God's power. Look at verse 9. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord Babel, or confused, the language of all the earth. And if you're not familiar with the rest of your Bible, you, you might not know that the city of Babylon becomes this symbol for the pride of man. For all the kingdoms of this world that are, that are united in rebellion against the Lord. And, and prophets like Isaiah and Daniel, they, they prophesy, they forecast Babylon's destruction. And that's exactly what happens in Revelation 18.10. When we hear the kings of the earth crying out, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. What, what is that a picture of? That is a picture of King Jesus at the end of human history asserting his rightful rule and dominion over all the kingdoms and all the purposes of man. By the way, that's not because he doesn't have that dominion right now. It's simply that on that day, we're going to see it for what it really is. But until we get to that day, the Lord called the original recipients of Genesis, the nation of Israel, he gave them the same call through this story, this history that he makes to us. And I think that call is found in Revelation 18 verse 4. Come out of her, my people. Come out of Babylon, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven. What did the people think they were doing? Building a tower with its top in the heavens. You know what they were actually heaping up to the height of heaven? Their sins, their pride. And God has remembered her iniquities. The response to the fact that the human pride, the pride of man, will not prevail against the purposes of God. The only right response to that is to come out of Babylon, to walk away from the kingdoms of this world, the thoughts of this world, the, the attitudes of this world that would make much of us and walk into and toward the kingdom of God where we use all that we are and all that we have to make much of him. We come out of Babylon. But coming out of her doesn't mean leaving this world, okay? We're not gonna go form some commune. I'm not gonna come back next Sunday with like, move to the middle of nowhere with me, okay? It means using our gifts, talents, and abilities and opportunities right here and now, wherever God's planted you, in such a way that you help people around you so far as depends on you to see how great God is. And when it seems like the plans of the nations will prevail, and the plans of proud and arrogant people in your life will prevail, remember this, friend. You have an opportunity to trust, to remember, as 
Genesis 11, one through nine teaches us that God is on the throne and that it's God's sovereign purposes that will prevail. That's not just a truth that's true in the cosmos, some 50,000 foot level. That's true at the smallest level of all the circumstances in your life. It's comforting to know that the purposes of our loving father who is sovereign will prevail. It's comforting. I think one of the most fascinating things about this whole table of nations in, in chapter 10, who are scattered by the Lord's judgment at Babel, do you know this, this entire list includes all of Israel's major enemies? Every one of them. The Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. What, what's the implication here as Israel's receiving this book and reading it on the border while they're waiting to enter the promised land? What's the implication? The implication is God is confronting them with a flashing neon sign. All these enemies you're about to encounter, I rule over all of them. I dispersed them. They thought they could become like me. I said, no way. And I dispersed them. Israel, are they going to hurt you? Are there proud and arrogant men and women in your life, friend, who are going to attack you and bring genuine pain into your life? Absolutely. But what does God say to us in the midst of that? He says that there is not a single human enemy on the earth who does not fall beneath the supremacy of God. He's in control. They're not in charge of your life. God is. Daniel 4, verse 37. All God's works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. That starts with our hearts, but it extends to every human being we will ever meet. The diversity of our languages, all the translators in the UN, if you would, they represent a, a divinely ordained limit or boundary on our cooperative rebellion against the Lord. It's harder to rebel against him if you can't do it all together. But friend, I remind you this morning that even that sign of our rebellion, the fact that there are, we live in a world full of different languages, that even that sign, God will one day redeem and bend back toward eternal good. Why do I say that? Zephaniah 3.9. For at that time, says the Lord, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. When is that going to happen? When, well, that work's going to be completed in the heavenly city. The new Jerusalem, when, when God creates a new heavens and a new earth and we dwell in a city that, that doesn't rise from earth to heaven through the ingenuity of man, but rather comes down from heaven to earth through the mercy of God. And in that city, the speech of all the peoples will be a, a pure speech. 
Not because they're all going to speak your language. <laughs> We're not going to all speak the same language, but because, because every language and every tongue will be deployed in adoration and worship of God. Think about that. For all eternity, God is not going to eliminate the linguistic diversity that started off as a sign of human rebellion, he's gonna bend that, he's gonna redeem that such that he gets immeasurably more glory through that. What, what, what kind of God can do that sort of thing? It's amazing. It's amazing. So I close by admonishing you, friend, do not wait for God to humble you on that day. Don't wait. Humble yourself today. Take, take all that you are and all that you have and, and devote it to glorifying God today because all who humble themselves before God today will be exalted on that day and all who magnify themselves against the Lord on this day will be humbled on that day. Remember that. Humble yourself today under the hand of God. First Peter 5, verse 5, God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. The whole point of these two chapters is that the Lord will not fail to humble all who magnify themselves against him. And he does that for two reasons. Remember the reasons. First, because human pride is an assault on his supremacy. And second, because human pride cannot prevail against the purposes of God. Remember those things, friends. Remember you're the creature. You're not the creator. And spend your life magnifying his glory accordingly. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would teach us to turn away from human pride and instead to devote our life and all our thoughts and our energy and our talents and our money and our time to making much of you. Father, it's so easy to read this familiar story of the Tower of Babel, at least familiar to some, and I think how foolish, how, how silly. And then 24 hours later, we show up at work to convince our boss. We show up at the playground to convince the other parents how great and glorious and amazing we are. Lord, please forgive us for that. Forgive us for loving being enamored with our glory instead of yours. Forgive us for trying to control our life instead of trusting you with our life. Lord, forgive us for the way we have forgotten that behind every choice to obey or disobey is a choice to glorify you or glorify ourselves. Help us to see our days for what they really are call to worship, a call to magnify the name that is above every name. And Father, I thank you that because 
of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that when we are confronted with your absolute sovereignty over the pride of man and the purposes of man, that we can rest in that, knowing that through faith in you, you have called us your beloved sons and daughters. Jesus, thank you that you have given us a glorious name, a marvelous identity. And I pray that we would not despise that, but we would receive it and we would rest in it and we would praise your name accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.